Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. At the end of his life, this is Daniel. Remember, you begin with the end in view. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, that is, that he wasn't supposed to pray or else he'd be thrown in the lion's den, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel has this incredible confidence that his hope in the chaos is that God is the one whom he can speak to, and God is the one who is in control of it. And that's why, clear back here in his middle school years, we read in Daniel chapter 1, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. In other words, Daniel took a stand when he was 14, and therefore, when he turned 60, 70, 80 years of age, he was still taking a stand. Now, this is just a great lesson for some of our young people who are in junior high or high school. What you're doing now matters. It does. Because if you begin with the end in view, Lord, when I get older, I want to be a person who follows you. I want to be a person who meets you face to face. I want to be that kind of person. Then your steps now matter. And by way of reminder, our steps matter. If you struggle to be engaged in the Word on a regular basis and during the 40-day spiritual discipline challenge, you started to do that, listen, begin with the end in view. You're going somewhere, and you must take these steps now. That's the first support. Here's the second one. Chapter 2, be ready when called upon, okay? Chapter 2, be ready when called upon. Begin with the end in view, but be ready when called upon, now, in, in, Gen- in Daniel chapter 2, what happens is Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he doesn't really trust the people who interpret his dream, so he gives them this uh, deal, remember? He says to them, listen, here's what's going to happen. Um, I will believe your interpretation if you can tell me what I dreamed. Okay. And all of the magicians and all of the dream interpreters, they say, that's impossible. In fact, look at it. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 10 The Chaldeans answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Nobody knows what you dreamed. That's what they say. But Daniel does. Daniel does. Because the task is impossible, we learned that impossible tasks are meant to drive us to God. They're meant to drive us to God. Now, this is really fascinating in Daniel chapter 2 because I just want to remind you what Daniel does. Look at verse 16. Daniel doesn't have the interpretation, but he doesn't panic. Oh, by the way, there's cause for panic because Nebuchadnezzar said, if tomorrow morning people can't tell me what I dreamed and interpret it, then guess what? You all die. Okay, just like that. So there's a cause for panic, like we're all going to die, all right? But Daniel doesn't panic. Instead, look at verse 16. Bear in mind, he is a young man, right? Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation of the king. He's walking by faith. He's saying, I'm going to depend upon the Lord to give me an answer. And then he does something else really fascinating. This is a great reminder for us when we face tasks that feel impossible. Look with me at Daniel chapter 2, verse 17. 
Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? His companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now think about this for a second. Impossible task, but Daniel's ready. He does three things. He doesn't panic. He takes a step of faith. He trusts the Lord, and he invites the prayer support of others. And what happens? Watch this. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in the vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the Lord God of heaven. And he walked in the very next day and says, I'm ready to talk to the king. And the king says, what do you have to say to me? He says, I can tell you your dream. And he tells him his dream, right? He tells him his dream that there's this statue that's got a head of gold and and an upper body of silver. And then it's got uh, mid-waist of bronze. And it's got feet of uh, legs of iron and, and feet of mud and iron. And he says, that's your dream. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, wow, that's my dream. And he says, okay, let me tell you what it means. And he begins to unpack the dream and give him the interpretation. But there's a really vital part of the dream. As you looked, he said, a stone was cut out of no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces. Daniel says, here's the deal. This, all of of these parts of the statue are the kingdoms of men, but this this, this rock falling out of heaven is the kingdom of God, and it is going to crush the kingdom's men. This is really fascinating, because one of the first things Daniel recalls, remember he's recalling this and laying it out when he gets to the prophecies, one of the first things he recalls is that Nebuchadnezzar built a statue. Okay. Now, for just a moment, if this was my dream, okay, I think it's probably not a great idea to build a statue. How about you? Right. Like, whatever I build is going to be destroyed. How would you feel about that? Like, let's imagine momentarily, you've done this creative work of art in art class. Your art teacher walks over, she looks at it, and she gets a hammer and she smashes it. Okay. Okay. You'd say, well, that was a waste of time, right? Yeah, that's what you'd think Nebuchadnezzar would think. That's not what he thought. In fact, in Daniel chapter 3, we understand the dangers of idolatry. Daniel chapter 3, understand the dangers of idolatry. Okay, now, just watch this real quick, because I'm going to teach you in 30 seconds or less how you can remember what's going on in Daniel chapter 3, Daniel chapter 4, and Daniel chapter 5, okay? Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's their story. Three friends, Daniel 3. Wasn't it convenient of God to help you remember, okay? Daniel chapter 4, that's where King Nebuchadnezzar falls down on all fours and lives like an animal because of his mental breakdown for a while. Daniel chapter 4, he's on all fours. Daniel chapter 5, that's when the hand with five fingers writes on the wall. Three, three friends, Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar on all fours. Daniel chapter 5, just remember the hand's going to write on the wall, okay? Got it? Okay, there'll be a quiz on it after. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, here we go. Understand the dangers of idolatry. In Daniel chapter 3, this is what we read. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, the king puts up the statue, And he says, when the music plays, everybody worship the statue. Fall down and worship the statue. And here's what happens. Everybody bows down except three people. Uh, Let's see, who can I use? Uh, uh, I'll let Pastor Scott be seated. Just stand up for me. Ryan, Rachel, and Lucas, real quick. Now imagine what this is like, okay? This, the music plays, and everybody sits down except three except fathom this, on the plains, uh, out on the desert plains, there are literally thousands of people. They don't sit down, they bow down, and there's three people who stay standing. 
Okay, you guys can sit down. I won't make you stay up the whole service. Oh, I should have, though. All right. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer the king. The king says, listen, I want those three guys. Why won't they bow down? And they say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Ooh, almost sounds like an attitude, doesn't it? No, they're just confident. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning of the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods nor worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, they kept a command, but I think they also understood something else, that there was a danger to idolatry. In fact, maybe I can just touch base and bring application to all of us for a moment. We are prone to worship the gift and not the giver. This is the lesson of idolatry. You and I are prone to worship the gift and not the giver. Just think about that for a moment. Uh, you're working hard, end of the year comes, you get a bonus. Do you think about the bonus amount more and how you might spend it? Then you think about the fact that God himself gave you the ability to reach the bonus? Do you and I think of the home in which we live or the vehicles in which we drive? Do we long for something more? Are we prone to let our attention be drawn to the gift more than the giver? In fact, it's fascinating. I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego remembered a portion of the scripture that they would have known as children. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 16, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, that's the angels, you, that's the uh, stars rather, and be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them things that the Lord your God has allotted to all peoples under the whole heaven. God created these things. Um, Moses was telling the people, and you are prone to worship the gift, not the giver. Now, just let me show you something really interesting. Look at this Deuteronomy 4 passage. It's only in Deuteronomy that we realize something. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, say it with me, the likeness of what? Male or female. You know what I've learned as a, just as a person living in society, is that we tend to look to other people as what we really desire and want. And when they don't become what we want, we tend to carve them. That's right. Look at the text. Carved image for yourselves in the likeness of male or female. So here's what happens. We are prone to worship the gift and not the giver, but because the gift is imperfect, we are prone to carve it to our liking. That's right. Some of you are the receivers of that. I'm sorry. Maybe a parent or a spouse just kept carving. They used their words to cut, to manipulate, to detour, to try to change you. And in a situation where they wanted you to become more like God, that's a good thing, but sometimes we even do that wrongly, right? With words that cut and carve and manipulate. Because the gift is imperfect, we are prone to carve it to our liking. When I first started premarital counseling, I would sometimes keep a carpet knife in, 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 um, in my desk, and I would literally say, listen, I'd pull it out, and I'd say, listen, you guys love each other now, but here's what's going to happen. The longer you're married, you're going to want to carve away the things you don't like, right? 
And as opposed to serving one another, you're going to think you can make this other person be a certain way. Okay. Here's your image. Just look at it for a second. This is what we tend to do with the people around us. We tend to carve them in the way we want them to be. I just want to remind you, pure and simple, this is idolatry. You think you know what you want them to be so that they would satisfy you. You begin worshiping the gift that God gave and not the giver, and you carve away. I'm not a skilled carver. I'm not a skilled whittler. My dad picked it up late in life, but I know this, that when I've tried and I make a mistake, ooh, cut a little deep. I got to go to the other side, cut a little deeper, right? And then I nick that side, and I got to come to this side, cut a little deeper, Because we are imperfect in our carving, we continue to carve these people thinking they will ultimately become what we desire. That's never what God intended. So there's two lessons here for you. Understand the dangers of idolatry regarding other people. You may be the recipient of someone carving on you. Find your identity in Christ, right? Not in what they think of you. But you may also be one of those people that's carving. You gotta ask yourself, Are you worshiping the gift or are you worshiping the giver? Understand the dangers of idolatry. Daniel chapter 3, three friends say, we won't worship your idol. They're thrown in a fiery furnace. Jesus shows up in the fiery furnace, okay? They come out of the fiery furnace and the king says, whoa, let's worship their God, okay? I thought I could destroy them. I can't destroy these men. Understand the dangers of idolatry. Here's the fourth idea. Walk humbly to glorify God. We're recollecting what Daniel would have been recollecting, okay? Begin with the end in view. Be ready when you're called upon. Understand the dangers of idolatry. Uh, Walk humbly to glorify God. Now, remember I said Daniel chapter 4 is where Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, is so proud of everything that he's done that God momentarily says, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. And he has a mental breakdown, and he goes in his animal-like condition, and he literally goes down on his hands and knees and doesn't come up for a period of time. Walk humbly to glorify God. There may have been a reason why Nebuchadnezzar struggled with pride. He had created in Babylon what is one of the seventh wonders of the world, okay? He had created the hanging gardens. Now, they really weren't hanging. They were tiers. In other words, he created these massive tiers and had trees and shrubs from all over the civilized world planted there. And so when you walk through uh, Nebuchadnezzar's gardens, you not only walked through and saw all of this, but you saw it from a distance. It was so massive. In fact, that's why Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power, not walking humbly, as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. Wow, that sounds like God-like language, right? We want God to have the glory. Nebuchadnezzar said, no, 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 it's for my glory. I built it from my mighty power. Here's a great thought for you. Our pride and independence alters our reasoning. It does. When we are prideful, we're not thinking properly. Humility is the source of wisdom. Humility is always the source of wisdom. When you begin to think, I don't need that, I know that, okay, I just want to remind you that pride and independence alters your reasoning. Um, Years ago, I remember hearing the story of an old and wise, respected pastor that I admired, and he, he's been here and spoken, Dr. Gene Getz, and, um, and I remember that this individual told me that he, he said he would travel with Dr. Getz from time to time. He said, I never sat with him when someone else was preaching, even if it was bad preaching, that he didn't pull out a paper and start taking notes, right? 
because he thought there was something for him to learn. Our pride and independence tells us we don't have to learn. Humility is the source of wisdom. And in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's sense comes back to him. And at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. That is, when I came through that mental breakdown, he said, and my reason returned to me. See how I said it's about we no longer think rationally, rightly, when we're struggling with pride. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Whoa, that doesn't sound like it's for my glory. That sounds like it's for God's glory, right? Who lives forever for his dominion, his everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And then he goes on to say, watch this, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Wait, wait, I thought you were the guy who said, it's all about me, it's all about my glory, it's all about my majesty. No, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. Nebuchadnezzar includes him in that, himself in that list, and he, that is God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Got it? There it is, pure and simple. Walk humbly to glorify God. Here's the fifth one. Realize you'll give an account. Realize you'll give an account. Daniel chapter 5 Daniel chapter 5. Now, in Daniel chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar's son comes on the scene. And his son, Nebuchadnezzar, has passed on, right? And King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. He is in front of a thousand people. And at this moment, he says, listen, you know that gold and silver that we pulled out of Jerusalem's temple? Why don't we bring that out? Again, remember, worship the gift and not the giver. Let's bring that out. And he says, he holds up the gold goblet and he says, let's worship the God of gold and silver. And immediately, five fingers, a hand on the wall starts to write something. And he totally freaks out, right? Because he's not really as much in charge as he thinks he is. And uh, they don't know what to do because they can't read the writing on the wall. They don't know what it means. So Daniel comes on the scene. And when Daniel comes on the scene, this is what Daniel says. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and the writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parsin. This is the interpretation of the matter, Daniel says. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Okay, he's just rejoicing, saying, my kingdom's going to last forever. And God says, it's over. Okay, it's over. But I want you to see this next part, verse 27. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And that very night, they came in and took his life. Now, to show you how out of his mind this king is, the king says, wow, somebody interpreted it. Great job. Hey, can you get him a purple robe? And can you get him some gold chains? Because Daniel interpreted it. Like, do you, did you just realize what he said? He said, it's all over tonight, last night. What are you doing? This guy is really drunk. Okay, that's all I can think of. Okay. He doesn't even hear what is said. He doesn't even hear what is said. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Here's a quick thought for you. You and I tend to think way too highly of the time and opportunities we have left. And we forget that we one day give an account. Now, that should, if you are without Christ, be a pretty frightening realization. Because everything you think you've ever kept hidden, everything you ever did behind a locked door, has to be presented before the one who knows all things. Hebrews 4.13, 
Um, for no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom they must give an account. Right? This is the great hope of the Christian, that Jesus died on the cross to forgive us for all of our sins and put those sins as far as the east is from the west, like they can't even be seen. And though we still may know and feel the guilt of those around us for what we've done, we can know that if we place our faith in Christ before God, we are seen as innocent. You say, Phil, that is too good to be true, okay? Okay, it may be too good to be true, but it is true, right? Because that's exactly what God says. Place your faith in Christ, trust that Christ died on the cross for your sins, and guess what? When you enter heaven, you will be weighed in the balances, but you will not be found wanting because God will see Christ's righteousness on your account as your sin on the cross went to his account. Realize you'll give an account. Okay. King Belshazzar didn't, and he died that very night. Here's the final idea, chapter 6. Last recollection, and then we're done. Okay. Trust God and do what's right. Really simple. Trust God and do what's right. Wherever you find yourself today, okay, whatever's happened in the past, whatever issues are back there, whatever issues happened even just 24 hours ago, here's what I want to tell you. All you're asked to do today is to trust God and do what's right. Now, you may remember this because when uh, Daniel, now in his aging years, he's, uh, he's still in Babylon. Now he's working for another king, a king by the name of Darius, Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. He's working for this other king because he's outlasted all of the kingdoms of men. And there he is serving Darius. And, and because he's so wise and because his character is of such character, they're exalting him right up the ladder as fast as he can possibly go. A new king, new situation, but they're still, ex- they're still moving him up the ladder. And the other people who are around him don't like that very much. And so they understand. They look and try to find something to catch Daniel with. And they can't catch him with anything. Look at verse 4, Daniel chapter 6. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said... We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And so they write a law, and they have King Darius sign it. They write this law that says if you pray to anybody else but Darius, you will um, be thrown in the lion's den. And so what does Daniel do? Daniel knows exactly what the law is, and he walks up and does exactly what he's always done. He throws the windows open. He gets down on his knees and he prays back towards Jerusalem where he has not lived like for 60 or 70 years, but he still sees his homeland as the place that he should pray towards. And he doesn't do it in secret. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't kind of like pray it in his head so that nobody sees him praying. He does it. He trusts God. And immediately they throw him in the lion's den. And the next morning when the king comes to see him because the king can't believe this has happened, Daniel said to the king, now he's saying this, verse 21, from the lion's den, okay, you with me? He's been down there all night. Um, Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him. They didn't even scratch him, 
right? Watch this. Say it with me. Because he had what? Trusted in his God. There it is. Your final recollection that Daniel remembers before he ever gets into the prophecies, which we'll do next week, is to trust God and do what's right. So there they are. Begin with the end in view. Be ready when you're called upon. Understand the dangers of idolatry. Walk humbly to glorify God. Realize you'll give an account. Trust God and do what's right. It's a value for us, just like Daniel, to go back and recollect how God has worked in our life all the way through, because when we do that, we're so much more prepared to face tomorrow. But we have these short-term, long-term memory loss issues. We don't remember how God worked in the past. We don't recount that. And therefore, we're not real ready to go forward. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill. Hill.